by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Welcome to Now Playing's Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio Retrospective Series. You swore this was a battle between warriors, so warriors is what I brought. With the February 19th release of Scorsese's latest film, Shutter Island, we here at Now Playing will be looking at the latest chapter in Scorsese's career by reviewing his four most recent films, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, The Departed, and Shutter Island, all of which star Leonardo DiCaprio. Are you with us or not? These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Four deep thinkers. And today, we are talking about The Aviator, a movie like all the movies in this retrospective series, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Leonardo DiCaprio. It also stars Kate Blanchett, Kate Beckinsale, Alec Baldwin, Alan Alda, and John C. Riley. And this is Stuart coming to you about uh, 15 miles away from the original Howard Hughes Air Base in Los Angeles. This is Jacob coming from where those airways were. Oh, wow. And this is Arnie. And if you remember the beginning of The Gangs of New York, our last movie, when everybody's coming and they got all their weapons out, I, I think I'm the guy who went on to be Mad-Eye Mooney with the big spiked baseball right now. <laughs> I'm ready to take my swings at Howard Hughes for $10 a lick. Okay, so, <laughs> all right. I, does that make me the natives and you the dead rabbits? Well, well, we'll see. Yes, when we last left, uh, we had just left Gangs of New York, a pet project of Martin Scorsese, the movie he had been working his whole career to make. What would he do next? How do you top that once you've done everything you've wanted to do in your life? You do the movie that your star wanted to make more than any other movie in the world. Leo grew up in Southern California, where Howard Hughes is revered and loved and had always had in his idea that he would make a biopic about the millionaire aviator movie maker madman playboy and so this is not a martin scorsese movie per se he is a hired gun it was originally supposed to be directed by michael mann who after ali said eh, i'm done with biopics for a while and so he brought in his good friend marty and said marty i want you to do this for me and so catch me if you can the movie he made in between Gangs of New York and The Aviator was sort of his warm-up. Uh, they have sort of a similar feel. No, they don't. They, Spielberg wouldn't bite. Well, they do have a similar vibe. Yeah, Spielberg they both have airplanes in them. Yeah, that's the only comparison. They both have airplanes. Other than that, one's a fun little romp with a little bit of action and mystery, and one is a cure for insomnia. Okay. Uh, well, we're getting towards a review. I'm going to wrap up real quick because I sense that Arnie wants to jump in here with his opinion. Well, no, actually, you know what I really want, Stuart? What I what I desperately want? Starting with the last podcast, you were doing summaries of the movies. I want you to summarize this movie for me. <laughs> all right. All, well, all 17 different storylines. <laughs> Okay, and I am going to address that, but I don't, you know, we're doing a biopic here. I will address the scattered quality you're talking about, but biopics, I think before we even get into Howard Hughes, his life, the years that this movie covers, anything like that, let's just talk about biopics, because in general, I'm going to put it out there, I don't think you guys are going to disagree, not my favorite genre. 
Not something that I tend to consume a lot of. I don't like movies that try to sum up a man's life in two to three hours. Can I tell you, I thought about this quite a bit. And I think there's really three types of biographies. Because life doesn't have a three-act structure. Correct. So you get these based on true story movies or biopics. And, you know, you can get a pursuit of happiness, which is a biopic of some sort, but everything is so fictionalized. It makes a great movie, but it is so far from the honest events that when you go and research the people that that movie was about, you're like, that, that wasn't in the movie. Mm-hmm. They've turned real life into a fairy tale or some kind of parable or story. Yes, it's a, usually with a feel-good uplift, inspirational. Yeah. Okay, that's, so that's one. Number two is the sanitized life story where you kind of force a three-act structure on it. I'd kind of say this was walk the line. You know, they kind of smoothed it out for audiences. They took out a lot of the religious aspects and tried to just give you the story of this person's life. So an idealized take of a person is what you're talking about. But it's kind of their whole life. It's, you know, you're telling the story of how they began and where they ended up and, you know, kind of a, a summation. Artie, what, you're looking for the behind the music structure. Mm, exactly. <laughs> their rise yes. to fame, their fall, and their redemption. Yes. Right. And that's what yeah. Walk Perfect. the line was. <laughs> But then there's number three, and these are in descending order of my enjoyment of them. The third and worst is the greatest hits of a person's life. And this has to be somebody famous enough that you know something about them. And then you go to the movie just to see these stories that you've read acted out in front of you. And there's no real story. There's no real arc. It's just you already know enough going in that you just get to see what you already know dramatized. Hence, the aviator. Mm, we are going to disagree about, I understand what you're saying. I don't think that's what the aviator is at all. But, okay, interesting. I would actually define biopics, tend to work on one cliche and one cliche only. And that is that they'll take a person and go, he was a genius, but he was an asshole. Every biopic is a variation on how much they want to emphasize one over the other. Some biopics, I feel like The Doors, for example, was a movie in which I felt like, yeah, they lionized him. But at the end, you walked away going, I don't like Jim Morrison. Martin Scorsese made a biopic already. Jake LaMotta, Raging Bull. The whole point of it was while he might have been great in the ring and what made him so great as a boxer made him an absolutely horrible husband friend human being when he's walking the regular streets so that's the tendency i tend to see is that they either want to call someone a genius and a brilliant person that walks among us some messiah or a complete asshole who should be uh, stoned to death maybe a combination of the two when i approach a, a biopic and it's not my favorite genre film which is odd because when i go to read prose book I love nonfiction. I love information dumps and learning about things. But for some reason, biopics, they give you the what, but they don't often give you the why. They'll show you all the crazy things this person did, all the wonderful things this person did. But oftentimes, they don't give you any insight into the person. And that's what I want. What made this person so eccentric? What made them this musical genius? Uh, I, I think of... Uh, Man in the Moon, the, you know, with Jim Carrey being 
Andy Kaufman. Love Andy Kaufman. Love his comedy style. And you know what? Jim Carrey did a great job becoming Andy Kaufman. And, and that's another thing with biopics. It's often how well does this actor transform into another person? Walk the line. How well did Joaquin Phoenix become Johnny Cash and sound like him and sing like him? But they don't give me any insight into the character. Why was Andy Kaufman batshit crazy? Why, why did he develop the comedy style that he did? It doesn't give me any insight. I, the only uh, biopic that I've ever enjoyed, and I've enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it, it really changed my life and inspired me to do uh, some things that I, I never really thought of doing, and that was American Splendor uh, about the comic book writer Harvey Picar. But that delved into the why. Why was he the way he is? And, and that's what I'm really looking for. I'm not as bound to story structure like you are, Arnie. I, I know story is a big thing for you. Character development, plot points, all that. I, I understand that a biopic's going to be, it's about a character. It's more of a character study. So I, I'm willing to bend a bit more on the story aspects. But I, I got to have some insight into the person. I, I just want to see these actors doing what the real life person did. That doesn't provide me any insight. It doesn't give me any of the why. And this movie gave me no why. I would agree with you on that. And it, that is this movie, The Aviator. Let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Is the biopic of Howard Hughes. And I'd like to interject on that. I think that biopics by their nature need to preach to the choir. Because I think if you know nothing about this person on whom the movie is based. Again, unless it's one of those you don't really know this person like Pursuit of Happiness. But if it's based on a quote-unquote famous person, you're not going to make anybody fans of this famous person unless they were already interested in it. Going into this, I kind of thought Howard Hughes founded TBS. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that maybe you will in the sequel? <laughs> I I really had no clue who Howard Hughes was. I didn't even know the time period of the film. I, I kind of thought he was in entertainment, but I was confused why it was called The Aviator. I, I was like, didn't he found a network? So when I put this in, I, I knew nothing about Howard Hughes. And similarly, I would say that I didn't know much about him other than I knew he was very rich and very eccentric and all of those horrible stories of him going mad in a hotel room with long fingernails and stringing hair. Like, I knew the dirt, the gossip. That's what I knew about Howard Hughes. And that he, you know, created airplanes. I didn't know that he had a Hollywood movie career. Oh, you see, I would have gone the exact opposite way. I thought the aviator bit was that he, like, had a hobby of flying planes. I had no clue he was involved in TWA. All I knew was he was someone in the entertainment industry whose name I'd kind of heard referenced in my life, but I knew nothing. And let me tell you, no, after seeing this movie, I don't care to know anymore. Because <laughs> they did such a great job, you feel like, wow, I know it all, right? No. Not in the least. Crickets? <laughs> you know, here's the thing. Jacob was just mentioning Man on the Moon. I saw Man on the Moon. It left me a little cold. And then I was channel flipping and they did like a behind the music on I think E or something where they interviewed people who knew Andy Kaufman and they talked to Michael Richards who was involved in that big scuffle on that TV show. I forget which one it was. And I got so much more out of the interviews with people who knew Andy than I did on this fictionalized Jim Carrey wants an Oscar real bad piece that, you know, I kind of feel the same way about Howard Hughes. I probably would have gotten a lot more and even been more interested in him if I'd seen an A&E biography telling me about him in a 
structured way where I could come in with some knowledge of it rather than, again, what I feel was a greatest hits of this guy's life and not knowing who he was. I'm sitting here the entire time just fucking lost. Mm. I mean, is this a movie about a movie maker? Because that's what it seemed like. And then is this a movie about a guy who owns an airline company? Because that's what it seemed like. Or is this a movie about a guy who... Kisses and milk bottles. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to agree with you halfway, Arnie. This movie is totally scattered. I'm going to make the argument that that was the intention of Martin Scorsese. He was not interested, I'm going to repeat this, he was not interested in making a movie about Howard Hughes. Martin Scorsese was not in a point in his career where he was willing or able to call his next shot, so he just did this as an exercise. And I think he approaches Howard Hughes from an impressionistic standpoint. And what I appreciate about this movie is that he does not try to sum up Howard Hughes' life in total. Although there is this flashback, the movie starts with him as a boy for one scene, they are really focused only on a certain amount of years. They exclude a whole lot of interesting things that happened to Hughes after the late 40s. They only focus on about a decade and a half of his life. And it is totally about getting you into the mindset of a guy who's going insane. The movie has got madness coursing through its veins. It's a, you watch it and you feel crazy because every time you feel like you're starting with a steam or you're starting with something, it goes somewhere else. And yet there's this weird linking between them, this OCD quality that connects them. He'll be rubbing a girl's back and the next thing he'll be rubbing an airplane. And the movie tries to get you into the mindset of Howard Hughes. Uh, Scorsese, I'll say this about him. You asked Jacob earlier, I think in the last podcast, what makes a Scorsese movie a Scorsese movie? It's POV. He does everything that he can with a camera to try and get you to see something the way that his characters see them. So there is a lot of point of view, and the camera will move, it will follow for incredibly long takes it will get really up close on flashlight bulbs breaking or minutia and then pull back he has done his best to try and create a portrait of a man going insane as he creates some of the most impressive aeronautical engineering of the 20th century i I get what you're saying with with the film jumping around and, and trying to get this point of view i but man I don't know how many more times I need to see flash bulbs <laughs> blow up and, and have them walk on them. And this is already, what, two hours, 50 minutes? There's just so much going on. It's hard to hold my attention during it. I, I, I think you could get into his whole mental illness in a better way. I, I just don't know if you need to show a film about a mentally ill man from the mentally ill perspective. I, I just, <laughs> it, 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 I'm sure there's some film creator out there that can make that work it didn't work for me here i would say the filmmaker that could make that work is perhaps crispin glover (laughs) (laughs) and i think he's already done those films he really did he really did you know i don't like movies where the creator be it the director the producer the writer decides you know rather than telling an interesting story on screen i'm just gonna fuck with the audience instead You know, don't make a movie that's incoherent and say I'm going to try to make the audience understand what it's like to be crazy. That's bullshit. I don't know if it's bullshit, but I can understand why you'd be frustrated because the movie does not tell you. It is not. You said that this was the greatest hits of Howard Hughes. I don't think it is. It doesn't cover his whole life. 
Well, it kind of does, because a lot of the shit in this movie didn't take place in this 15 years. He didn't lock himself in a room with the pee and the milk bottles until he was almost 50. So there's, you're saying that they brought that in earlier? Yes, they took a lot of things out of context to put it into this 15-year time span that weren't really there. Wow. But Arnie, don't, don't you think they have to look at that aspect? Of, I mean, because that's, that's what I knew Howard Hughes for. So I think you have to get into those aspects of his life where he was going crazy or already crazy. And I don't mind the time compression here. I, I, I just don't think there's any way you could avoid that. If uh, Scorsese wants to only focus on a, on a decade or about a decade's worth of his life, I still think you have to bring that aspect in because it's a major point of who Howard Hughes is. I don't disagree. I was merely stating this in response to Stuart saying it wasn't a greatest hits. No, it was a greatest hits by taking the greatest hits throughout his life and putting it in the point of this. I hate to use the word narrative. So time frame. Yeah. Time frame is a good word because I'm, I'm going to agree with both of you on this. I don't have the negative response that you do, but this is not a good storytelling device. It's not even intended to be storytelling. It's little moments and I guess compressed might be the way to say it, but it, it, the word I keep going back to is impressionistic. It tries to give you a sense of the man by giving you an impression of what it was to be in bits of his life. But it won't tell you dates and facts, and it certainly doesn't celebrate him in the way that I think traditionally biography films do. And I appreciated that because, again, I don't like biography films. I don't like films that think that they can surmise who somebody is in three hours or less. I think that's arrogant, and I think it tends to be a little bit too either idealistic or they make the person that you want to like or are compelled to see look like a real jerk. Stuart, you said they're not going to cram it with dates. This is one thing that annoyed me. There are so many subtitles telling you where we were, what the date was, and they're totally useless, and it drove me crazy. It's uh, – Hell's Angels, year one. And then you have this newsy. Here's Howard Hughes still filming uh, after one year of Hell's Angels. You, you get all these dates in this film or who this person is or what the situation is. And then you have the characters tell you the date, <laughs> tell you who this character is. And it draw, I'm like, is this uh, Howard Hughes for dummies? Where they have to tell you everything 16 times to get it in your head because the film is so damn confusing. It's hard to keep everything straight. Yeah, I think that that definitely is probably something they added in post, the dates. I well, there wasn't somebody there holding title cards. Yeah. <laughs> there was well, added in post. Well, uh, okay. <laughs> All right, jokester. Yes, yes. <laughs> a decision made in post, yes. There was not literally people holding up letters like a cheerleader. Um, on I the would prefer that. Board. Yeah, well, it certainly would add to the crazy, but I think this movie's got crazy and then some. Stuart, you use the word impressionistic. Yes. When I think of impressionism, I think of old painters. I, I, I don't know enough about art to speak as to even the name of an impressionist painter. But that that's where my mind goes. So, mm -hmm. And I think that perhaps impressionist would work here because – I don't know about you guys, but for half the movie, I thought I got a bad DVD. Yes. <laughs> because this thing had the color palette of what dreams may come. Like, he's eating 
peas. I found out later they were peas. I thought he was taking pills because they were blue. And, you know, you talk about the impressionistic stylings of Scorsese in this, and I believe that this color palette is part of it. I personally, because I thought my TV was broken, I thought the DVD was broken, I really think that, you remember how when we reviewed Halloween 2, Stuart, it started with a title card that explained, you know, what the white horse was. This one needed one more title card. It needed to be at the beginning that had, like, Surgeon General's warning, artistic douchebaggery inside. Oh, no. Come on. I love the way this movie looked. You guys didn't like it? No. I hated how this movie looked. <laughs> I, I had the same reaction as you, Arnie. I'm like, man, what's wrong with my TV? I don't have the money to buy a new TV. What's going on? And I, I was reading on, I, I think it was Wikipedia, either that or IMDb, but it's it's like, oh, they wanted to have the colors look the way color movies did at that time. So you, have, you get this technicolor feel, and then they change it halfway through. But if this was just a movie strictly about a, a filmmaker – Okay, maybe I could go with that. If this was a movie about, you know, the guy who invented Technicolor, sure, that would make sense. But here, uh, yeah, artistic douchebaggery. <laughs> I, I have to agree with you. It, it was just like, let's do this for fuck's sake. Oh, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you on that. But I guess my, my response is 180 degrees different than yours. I loved it. I That's thought the movie you looked knew what beautiful. the fuck it was. It looked beautiful. I just I like they're on a golf course and the grass is like blue. I'm like, this is it's otherworldly. I actually asked my wife during this movie, is that what the color of grass was in the 20s? <laughs> <laughs> but Arnie, that rendering of color was actually how the cameras could render color at that time. What the design, the visual design. You know of what the film I would have loved, Stuart? I would have loved if he also used the audio from that time. And there were lots of pops and organs <laughs> and, you know, maybe. You know what? If they would have let him done it, I'm sure Martin Scorsese would have loved that too. And I'm sure somebody at some point cut him off and said, okay, you can do that to the film stock, but you cannot mess with the sound. And he loves old Hollywood. He loves movies. My criticism of this movie is Scorsese is far too enamored with the Hollywood side of Hughes' career. It's not really his most interesting part. Most people don't go back and watch the movies that he made. They're not considered classics, per se. So, like, that we spend so much time... Uh, looking at old Hollywood and the glamour and the houses and all of that, it does just become a sort of fetishizing of the era. And I think that's how Scorsese kept himself entertained in some of these scenes that he normally would not make because he's way out of his element here. It's not about Catholicism. It's not about Italian hoods. It's not even in New York. I don't think it ever goes to New York. So you're right. He has created a visual palette that keeps him stimulated with material that he normally wouldn't be associated with. I thought it looked great. You said he entertained himself. I'm glad somebody was entertained because I was not. Oh, no. Come on. There is, no, you're, you're acting like there's no humor in this movie. That it's like There are some funny lines, but I'm going to kind of take the middle road uh, between you two guys. Arnie said you weren't really entertained at all. Uh, Stuart, you said you didn't like the Hollywood aspect or you, you didn't think that was a, you know. Just too much. I liked it, but I felt like we got way more of that than I needed personally. See – when I was watching this, and after you see Hughes as a young boy, it just jumps straight to him filming Hell's Angels. And I was taken in by the production of Hell's Angels. If this movie was just about Hughes making Hell's Angels, I, I probably would have liked this. I actually want to go out and watch Hell's Angels now uh, after seeing this movie with the outlaw and getting into the whole argument about uh, showing a woman's cleavage. 
you know, that whole storyline is kind of dropped yeah. after he, he appears in front of the board to explain why it's okay for him to show so much of a woman's cleavage in this movie. <laughs> I thought that was entertaining. The fact that this guy is watching this movie and comes up with an idea, oh, hey, here's a better bra. Yeah. Like, I, I was really <laughs> taken in by the Hollywood aspect of Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. It is where the, a lot of the comedy of the movie comes from, is that he's a megalomaniac. He, you know, he, they make the entire movie, it's this torturous, pro, uh, super expensive production, the avatar of its day, if you will. And the two years, they're about, they've just wrapped on it, and he sees the jazz singer and goes, oh, all movies are going to be in sound now. We have to remake, we have to reshoot the whole thing for sound. Come on, Arnie, you didn't smile? That didn't make you laugh a little? You know, I was still with the movie at this point. We're only 20 minutes into the 180. <laughs> you know, it was a it was a downhill descent into boredom and hell. No. All right, fair enough. But but Grant, at least the movie starts out being much more lighthearted, much more about sort of a wild card filmmaker who's taking his inheritance and blowing it on a dream project that everything one thinks will fail and ends up lo and behold being uh i don't again i i stress i don't think hell's angels is considered a great movie but it has in some incredible visuals it was certainly a uh blockbuster let's let's take a step back now because uh, you talked about this is the first 20 minutes uh, and it's lighthearted and fun there's a scene that opens up this movie which i i don't get it's howard hughes as a young boy his mother is washing him having him spell quarantine and she starts talking uh, talking about cholera outbreaks and how he needs to stay clean and away from germs and i guess this is supposed to be the origins of his ocd is this where his ocd comes from what's the point of this scene except to explain why he goes crazy later on in life my impression of it is that yes that scene is sort of like if you've ever seen the movie Citizen Kane, which is a biography movie of, uh, of a newspaper man, sort of fictionalized biography. They had to fictionalize it because he would have sued them. That tries to say that everything about his megalomania and everything that he does comes down to one sled. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, no. Everyone's just tearing off their headphones and, and running away from the podcast because I blew the ending of Citizen Kane. So they try and give you a rosebud moment here. They put it in the beginning this time. And the whole idea is that Howard wants to be clean. His mother puts in him the idea that the world is unclean and that there is an edible complex running through him for the rest of the movie. He has women wash him, give him milk. Oh, yeah. Uh, The the, the milk. He wants clouds that look like breasts. Yeah. I mean, there's the whole infatuation with cleavage in the outlaw movie. I mean, yeah, that's something I picked up. There's a definite... If you're a Freudian psychologist, you have found your movie because the movie is very Freudian and I don't need to spend, you know, all of the the podcast talking about what this and that could mean. But you definitely can pick up again and again that there is a weird linking between his aviation, his milk drinking, the women in his life and his need to not have germs on his body. And that that comes up again and again and again. And the movie tries to impressionist capture that rather than tell you that my problem with this is it seemed to imply that his obsessive compulsive disorder is because he was washed as a boy and his mother put this in his head i believe obsessive compulsive disorder is actually an illness it's not something that is learned behavior it is an actual illness that medication can correct and you know 
I don't like the easy summation of, well, his mother bathed him and told him about quarantine, and now he washes his hands until they bleed. You know, there, there's more to it there, and it felt convenient and easy and untrue and a little bit disparaging to those with OCD. I know people with OCD, and I felt this kind of easy write-off as to why somebody's OCD was insulting, frankly. Arnie, this is Hollywood, Scientology. They don't believe in that kind of thing. (laughs) Oh, we thought the message boards were hot before. Wow, Scientologists are coming out. The The Thetans in my blood, you know. (laughs) Not touching that. Uh, I might I might agree with you, Arnie, that it's a bit simplistic to reduce everything about Howard Hughes to one moment being bathed as a child by, by a potentially crazy mother figure. It's easy, but that's what biography films do. They have to take simple moments from her life and say, this is the reason why. And that's what this moment is, and maybe it'll work for you, and maybe it doesn't. It's certainly a weird way to start a movie. I tell you, I was drawn in right from the get-go. Seeing the scene, a movie called The Aviator, no it's about Howard Hughes. This being the intro to the movie, I was like, wow, I don't know where this is going to go next. And it doesn't really come up directly. Again, we never flash back to anything further. It is only just something that exists in the back of your mind as you're watching his obsessions play out. There's another way to think about this movie. I do want to jump in with this because I, 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 this is the second time I've seen this movie. The first time didn't pick up on any of this. But this time, I couldn't get it out of my head. Did any of you guys think about Batman watching this movie? Well, I thought of Batman because uh, this movie just was batshit boring. <laughs> but think about it. Howard Hughes is Bruce Wayne. Like, this must have been what Bob Kane thought of when he wrote Batman. This must be it. The millionaire playboy who blows his inheritance on toys that allow him to fly and do things that other people can't. And, you know, like if this were a superhero movie, he'd put on a cape and call himself the aviator. And, you know, he's got this his kryptonite is his OCD and the and the villain is like Alec Baldwin wanting to control the world from his uh, Pan Am headquarters. Like it felt like a superhero movie to me. Here's here's the problem, Stuart. With Batman, he chooses to become a bat because he's scared by bats when he's a little kid. That's where he gets inspiration, and bats cause fear. Mm-hmm. Here you go from him getting a bath from his mom to being in love with planes, I, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, and I don't know why he loves flying. I mm-hmm. don't. This whole movie, you get this little flashback at the end that shows him as a kid saying, I'm going to be a great aviator. But why the hell is he obsessed with flying? Why does he want to change the technology of flying? Uh, why, you know, why does this possess him? I never get that moment where Bruce Wayne is attacked by a bat and he learns that that puts fear in him. I don't get that moment why he's obsessed with planes. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I think uh, I think that and that's that a is- problem when the movie's called The Aviator. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you all that. And I want to add just historically, I'm not, I'm not totally crazy on this. Christopher Nolan had a dueling Howard Hughes project, and Jim Carrey was going to be Howard Hughes. And they were going to make this in competition with Leo's picture. And like a lot of things in Hollywood, there's always two pictures that compete. Sometimes they get both made. A lot of times the other one drops out of the scene. Christopher Nolan lost his movie. What did he make? Batman Begins. So... I think there's something to this. I think that this movie could be appreciated 
if you cut it down, and I'm not saying comic book fans come out and unite behind the aviator, I think it's a fun way of looking at this movie, is that it does follow a real-life superhero model. I was annoyed to have this movie on, and that goes down to the performances by the actors. Oh, now we are going to fight, because I could have figured you wouldn't have liked the movie, but if you're knocking Leo's performance, we're going to battle. <laughs> okay, you know what I think Leo needs to do? He needs to go remake Point Break, because the kid's a young Southern California dude, and he needs to stop doing period pieces with accents he just can't fucking do. His it accent did, is flawless. His he, accent is horrible. It comes and goes, and it just... Oh, it's not the worst in the movie. I'm sure we're going to talk about the worst. But I think that his whole fake voice thing, this whole movie, just didn't work. It just... It seemed so... Actor's studio. See, uh, I, didn't have, I didn't have a problem with the accent. What I had a problem with Leo here, and this goes back to his, his boyish good looks... In gangs in New York, they greased this guy up. They made him look like Irish white trash. I, I thought, you know, he looked the piece. Yeah, sure. In The Aviator, he just came off as too young looking for me throughout this I, I, film. He never ages. Even when he grows the long hair and beard, he still looks like babyface Leo to me. He, he just never aged. They needed to use some makeup here to age him. That's what bugged me uh, with, with Leo starring as Howard Hughes in this film. Which I, I want to point out is not necessarily Leo's fault, and he does his best to compensate for that. But you're just saying it's miscasting. He's too, he looks too young to play the part he's playing. Yeah, I, I didn't have a problem with the accent or anything. It just he, I never bought him as the character. I didn't either. I never bought him with a mustache either. I don't think he can grow one. <laughs> oh, well, uh, all right. <laughs> I feel like this is getting in the realm of personal. Leo – is very good in this movie, Arnie. I, I don't I think you don't like the movie and so you don't want to like the performance. No, not true. Not true. Because I want to state and I want to make sure every listener knows this. While this movie is not exactly up my alley, and were it not for this podcast, I never would have gone to this section of the video store. I went into this movie with a completely open mind because of Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York, I was a little tapping on, and I liked that movie. It wasn't, you know, gangbusters, but it was, no pun intended, but it was okay. And so I went into the aviator like, you know, maybe. It could work. And I'll tell you the moment that my mind shut is when Kate Blanchett came on the scene. But up until that point already, I was kind of like, Leah, I don't think you're pulling this off for me, buddy. Okay, well, I, that's funny because I thought the one thing that we could all agree on was that this is the movie that changes the way you see Leo forever. That was Catch Me If You Can, which came out before this and was a far superior film. Because in Catch Me If You Can, I never once thought of Leonardo DiCaprio as Leonardo DiCaprio. And in this movie, I could think of him as nothing but a Southern California spoiled actor masturbating to one of Hollywood's early greats. <laughs> all right well i'm glad we this agree this movie might have done better if it actually showed a masturbating I, it yeah that uh, female demographic in okay you mentioned kate blanchett now i'm really going to be mad i think she's the best actress working male or female right now if there's one actor who i will see anything that they do it is kate blanchett she is awesome she's unparalleled she can play bob dylan she can play katherine hepburn I'm guessing, Arnie, you don't like or don't know the work of Katherine Hepburn, and that's why you're saying she annoyed you. You know, I know Katherine Hepburn from my lifespan, and I like Katherine Hepburn from my lifespan. On Golden Pond is a great film. Okay, that's like On Golden Pond. Yeah, <laughs> that's one movie. And A Lion in Winter. 
And oh yeah, you love that. Come on. Actually, I really do like <laughs> a lion in winter. I couldn't just pull that title out of my ass if I didn't. But and yeah, even guess who's coming to dinner is about as far back as I go with Hepburn. And I kind of feel I know the stereotype of Hepburn. As for Kate Blanchett, you say you see anything she's in. I had to go because she's one of those names I've heard of. I think like really the only thing I've seen her in is Lord of the Rings, and I didn't like her in that. Well, I mean, that wasn't one to feature her, you know. She, I think she had, what, one scene in a tree? I mean... Looking at her ouvre, Hot Fuzz is my favorite film of hers. <laughs> I have seen Pushing Tin, hated it. I didn't like Lord of the Rings. I saw The Gift, hated her in it. And other than that, I haven't seen her shit. And after seeing this, I don't want to. I know she won an Oscar for this. I go back to Hollywood jacking itself off about Hollywood. This is why nobody cares about the Academy Awards. I had a similar response to you, Arnie. When she first came on the screen, I'm like, she's way too over the top. She's playing a caricature. She's not playing who uh, Hepburn really was. And as I always do with movies that I don't get, I like to read reviews, commentary by people who do get the film to see if there's something I'm missing. And uh, I came across this, across this from Roger Ebert who said that – Hepburn in real life was so close to caricature uh, that to play her accurately involves some risk. And I I definitely got that feeling like if this person was really like that in, in real life, it's so over the top, it's, it's going to be hard to pull that off. And that's the initial feeling I had when I saw her performance. Now, once you have that dinner scene where she takes uh, Howard slash Leo to dinner with her family, I got why Catherine Hepburn was like that. But that scene comes so much later in the film. Everything before that, I'm like, man, this this is just way this is you know broad strokes for this character, just over the top acting, and took me out of the film. Again, real life's not sequential. Uh, I think this would have been one of those moments where you have to take some creative license, move timelines around, so you can get an idea of why the character is the way they are before you get this over-the-top performance. And let me tell you something. I will agree with you completely, Jacob. My negative reaction to Kate Blanchett is almost entirely from her introduction. After she's been in the movie for a half an hour and she took some Xanax, I was much happier with her performance. It was the way she was introduced where she she seemed like the crazy one because she was manic and she wouldn't stop talking and was bouncing from topic to topic. And again, the voice, you know, the affectation to try to get Hepburn's accent and cadence and it just the the way the character is introduced turned me off. Imagine you meet the girl of your your dreams, okay? And you would absolutely love this woman, but the first time you see her, she's taking a big shit. That is me introduced to Kate Blanchett in this movie. <laughs> uh, uh, so is she the girl of your dreams now? No, I'm, I'm just saying that had she started her performance the way she ended the performance, I probably would have gone, you know, not too bad. It was completely the opening from the moment they're playing golf to the dinner scene that just made me so against her that what little she did after that was too little too late because then she just disappears in the movie she shows back up again for like five minutes well okay i hear everything you guys are saying i agree with you you're right the opening they she comes on strong it's not just a little katherine hepburn it's it's 120 gigawatts of of katherine hepburn uh to borrow from back to the future there she at first is 
too much, but I enjoyed that. I'm like, okay, this is a caricature of Catherine Hepburn, but I am enjoying this because I like Catherine Hepburn. I like some of those old movies like Philadelphia Story and Bringing Up Baby. So I'm going to enjoy this just for the impersonation that it is. But what happens – I mean they do explain it. At some point, she keeps talking about who – People, her family wants her to be this Kate, but there's she's really Howard's Kate, and that she doesn't know that when she's not acting. Her whole struggle as a character is that she doesn't know how to turn that off, and that when she's nervous, she's even more of that way. I totally got it, and you're right. By the time the performance is completely unfolded, I thought she was great, and I would also argue this is the best romantic pairing I've ever seen for Leo ever. Like. Forget Titanic, forget Cameron Diaz. I think that this you're watching two of the greatest actors working today, tearing up the screen in this movie. Can we at least agree that there is no other female that follows that makes nearly the impression that Kate does, negative or positive? The rest of the women in his life are sort of uh, props, people that don't really have enough screen time or dialogue. I couldn't even give you one of their names. I remember seeing in the IMDb list that there were some other females who I know. There's Gwen Stefani. Yeah, I I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't catch her in it. I, you know, all of these other women just kind of come and go in this movie, and like, there's one scene where somebody's ramming him with a car, and I'm like, who in the hell are these women? I, why are we not introduced to them? Why are that, we not? That was the 15 year old he was dating. Yeah, yeah, he he went, he got creepy there after yeah. after Kate. He go, he really went went uh, young and and took a 15 year old girl as sort of his controllable uh rebound yeah i i actually like their story and again there's like 10 or 20 different stories going on in this movie and there's certain storylines i liked and others that didn't work i i liked their relationship i i like the moment where uh there's the investigator who has all these snapshots of kate tracy spencer having a extramarital affair and Howard Hughes gives up 10,000 shares of TWA to, you know, get rid of those pictures. I, I like those moments. I, I bought that, that they, he would be so concerned for her even after they broke up, that he was, you know, still cared for her, that she still cared for him. I like that relationship. Once I was able to get over, you know, her performance, I, I totally bought into it. Yeah. I don't think there's any other performances of note in the picture that I can think of. Arnie, you mentioned the worst one in the picture. Was that Kate for you? Yes. Okay. See, my, mine was the guy who played uh, Johnny Meyer, who who was one of uh, Hughes' production assistants. He comes on, on early in the movie, and he, he has some roles throughout. And the way he plays it, my problems with the Catherine Hepburn performance times a thousand. He, he just chewing up the scenery at this whole, hey, it's 1920s, hey, we're, we're, we're making a movie, hey, this is Hollywood, hey. <laughs> There's some of those performances where it's just like, here's – a cartoon version of what the Hollywood 20s and 30s were like. Get, getting into that aviation part and still talking about some of the, the acting, what would you guys think of – was it Alec? I, I know there's a million Baldwins. I believe it's Alec Baldwin. It was Alec, but my god, did he look like Steven. <laughs> he has aged a lot. I had to look up when The Aviator was made because I'm a big 30 Rock fan. I consider myself a fan of Alec Baldwin and his sweaty balls and all of that. I like Alec Baldwin especially as a comedian. But my God, he looked young in this film. Not Beetlejuice young, but young. <laughs> 
Yeah, he this decade has certainly not been kind to him. It's you know what I felt like like at one point in his career he could have played James Bond. He was that dashing and debonair and kind of old Hollywood looking. And then now I'm like he's the perfect Bond villain. That's what he is in this movie. He's like the guy stroking the cat in the secret lair in this movie. Of you know he runs Pan Am and he's always smoking these cigars. And then at one point he's even cornered Howard in his bungalow and is blowing smoke into the keyhole. And he's just like an over-the-top Bond villain. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, he plays a smug asshole really well. He always has. Yeah, I really liked his performance here. I I thought he was a great villain. You know, even his office for Pan Am, which he has this office where – constellations are painted on the ceiling everything's in this bright blue green to look like the sky you know so it looks like he's god sitting up in the clouds in his pan am office and i like that it it was it was gorgeous i I wanted to live in this world can i just say that i wanted to go to that nightclub Cabana, and have fake snow fall on me i wanted to go and have that be my office like how happy would you be to live in a world that looked like that it would make me happy it would make me laugh i don't think you're gonna give this movie one thing arnie you really like seem out to kill everyone down to the caterer on this set i'm sure that the ham sandwiches were good and the gaffers (laughs) used their gaffer tape well you know what let me tell you something else the focus puller this is one person i can applaud in this movie the movie was always in focus that's my (laughs) biggest thing to say about this movie that it did right it had focus not in the script but in the actual camera when we're talking about performances, Alan Alda always plays Alan Alda to me. But my mm-hmm. God, he did great here. He, I liked his character. I liked that he was devious enough to research Hughes and put the thumbprint on the glass. So that was good. That was good. It freak yeah. Hughes out. And, you know, I liked Alan Alda's character because I, I normally am disposed to like Baldwin. But here I felt he was a little bit too snidely whiplash. But Alan Alda was the one character that I enjoyed seeing on the screen this whole movie. <laughs> I'm sure he would love to hear that. You should write him some fan mail. You know, I always I feel like Alan Alda's career was he was typecast as the nice guy in the 70s and ever since then has been playing jerks to try and convince us that he has range. I, I always feel like he is it's hard to make him work as a villain, but you're right. I did enjoy the thumbprint. He's got a great line here where he's like, "We're the US government. We're going to take you down Hughes we we just need Germany and Japan who the hell are you I love that line. I, I wrote that line down. It's, it's such great. a great line. <laughs> it is. He's fun to watch in this. I'll give you that. He is a, a lot of fun. I do want to talk about one scene, though. There's one scene that I got to get out that I just think is incredible in this movie. The crash scene. The second crash scene. So impressive. There, uh, Howard Hughes is always the first one to test out his planes. He, he already took down a plane and it went down in a beet field uh, earlier in the plane. It's setting up for when the constellation goes down in the middle of Beverly Hills on a golf course. I think this scene is as impressive an action scene as any I've ever seen. And probably more so because when you're watching an action movie, you're always seeing action. You get desensitized to it. Watching a movie where you don't expect this kind of level of of excitement and explosions and all of that, when he goes down and is tearing off the the rooftop of the the Spanish tile and the the housewives are screaming and then he can't get out of the plane because the glass is too hot and he's all jacked up, that was an incredible moment. I will never forget that moment. I remembered it from the first time I saw the movie. I was waiting for it, and I was still blown away the second time I saw it. 
Yeah, I, I could. I don't know. It, it didn't hit me. It didn't hit me as that exciting. You know? Did you not have a visceral reaction? Did you not feel like you were there? Because a lot no. of action movies, I don't feel like I'm in there. And this I, one, I, it felt like, wow, this is really happening. No, I remember there was there was a shot that it kept showing where, where the uh, landing gear is running through that Spanish tile, like you said, and it just seemed like that was stock footage. It seems like they took the same shot of a tire running through the roof of this house and just kept replaying it. And and then, you know, intercutting it with different reaction shots. Like, I don't know. It, it didn't hit me right. It didn't seem like the plane was going fast. I don't know. It just seemed off pace. It, it, it didn't seem right to me. And let me tell you my thing. Because when this happened, I was like, oh, wow. This actually might be an exciting scene in a different movie. But this movie came out in 2004. Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars Part Six, came out in 2005. So... If you've seen Revenge of the Sith, we weren't at Avatar level of CGI, but we had really good CGI in 2005. Aviator was 2004. Every single bit of CGI, it felt terrible to me. It was so cheaply done. It was a step above Boa versus Condor on the sci-fi channel. And this whole scene was completely marred by the abominably bad CGI fire effects. The the standard for me for for a big crash uh, this this is the one that just pops into my head is the train wreck scene in uh The Fugitive and that was in 93 and that was exciting. I mean, you got people jumping out of the way of cars and these prisoners that are handcuffed, uh, you know, all this stuff going on. It's just fast paced and hell, there's probably no CGI in that scene. No, it kind of looks like Harrison Ford is running in front of a drive in movie screen at times, though. Yeah, at times. <laughs> but man, it was 93. What are you going to do? It yeah, was exciting. It was rear projection. I, remember, I, mean, I, I like rear projection. I remember seeing that, though, and people were like applauding after that scene in the theater. Mm-hmm. This one, it just seems slow paced and clunky. This one, I, I, you're in a freaking plane that's supposed to be like the fastest uh, spy plane ever, and it, it it just didn't seem like it was going that fast to me. Well, I don't feel like it was going movie fast, but maybe that's what I'm bumping up against. Is a lot of times when I see action movies or action sequences, they feel so slick that it could never happen. Whereas this one was clunkier. It's clunky enough for me to believe that this is actually how it would feel if you went down on that plane. Like, tearing up that roof, I don't know. It worked for me, and like I said, if I take away nothing else from this movie, and I don't know that I'd repeatedly watch this movie again and again. I certainly wouldn't have watched it if we weren't doing this retrospective. Me either. I will always remember that scene. I will always remember that scene. I won't. After that scene, the movie does sort of go in between. There's two modes. The OCD scenes. There's a really effective scene where Leo's in the bathroom and and not being able to hand a towel to someone that's on crutches. And there's a lot of him in the bathroom. I feel like every other scene is him in the bathroom. And then in, like, court or dealing with Alan Alda and how they're going to take over the airwaves uh, and have a monopoly unless Howard Hughes takes them down. Uh, The second half of or the last part of the movie is maybe a little bit too much for me. And See, I, I love the Senate hearings. That was one of my favorite moments in this film is, is where Hughes finally pulls his shit together so he could defend himself. I mean, you see him at his lowest point. Yeah. Uh, he's trapped up in this movie theater. And, and I honestly, I'm like, man, I don't know if he's going to be able to show up to these hearings. Yeah, like, sure. This guy it's, is so low. And when he gets into those hearings, he's such a badass. Like he just shuts down this prick senator. 
I, I, I love that. Uh, you, know what, you know what it is? It's not like these court scenes aren't satisfying. It's two things. One, I don't like courtroom movies in general. That's just my bias. I, I get bored with them. And two, it feels much more standard biopic to me of like, oh, of course he's going to fix all of his madness in one day, in like one good weekend, one good scrubbing from Ava Gardner, and he's ready to go in like Rocky into the big fight and take them all down. It's very Hollywood. It's satisfying. Oh, I was having fun, and I certainly enjoyed Leo putting him in his place, but it felt really fake to me. It felt really movie-ish. I'm glad it felt movie-ish. I was waiting for something movie-ish <laughs> in, in this movie. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, here's the thing. By this point, I'm, again, confused as to what the movie is. And when the Senate hearings were over, I'm like, oh, my God, we're we're still going on. We are still continuing the movie. Yeah. Well, you know, he had to prove that uh, the Batmobile, the Spruce Goose, whatever you want to call it. That, what, what do they call the it? Her- Hercules? Did, did, the Hercules. Did you, guys, did you guys think of uh, the Nutty Professor every time they said Hercules? Hercules, <laughs> Hercules. Like every time they said that, that's... <laughs> That's what I was I, thinking. Not a good side of a movie when I'm I'm throwing back to a later era Eddie Murphy film. <laughs> I actually would have preferred to watch the clumps to this. Oh, come now, Arnie. Really? Really? Um, it's no. All right. But anyway, yeah, I, I, yeah, they get the spruce goose off. And I remember the movie ending with him, da-da, and the spruce goose is airborne and everyone's happy. But no, the very last scene is kind of a stunner. It takes you back to... I guess the beginning, and that's the intention of that weirdness of that opening scene where he goes in the bathroom. He can't. He's he's kicked into his whole repeating lines thing again, and he and he's just in the bathroom once it's again. The it's the future. It's the, the future. way of the future. The way of the future. The way. It's creepy. It ends on a really creepy downbeat note. But that's the ending. That's <laughs> what I spent three hours for. Well, it was the way of Hughes's future. He did really go but I mean, we don't see that future it, it, I'm, it's I'm like okay with- off this is like the the final film this is like instead of star wars a new hope the only star wars film you ever get is the empire strikes back yeah or it, the it, phantom menace really yeah, oh, it, <laughs> it, it's like that's the okay it, it, the whole time you're showing this guy overcome his crazy side dealing with his eccentricities succeeding despite of his mental illness and then you end the film with his mental illness winning out yeah, I'm also upset that they never got into Hughes's drug use. In my reading after seeing this movie, the guy was an opiate addict because of that crash, and the opiates eventually led to his early death. I mean, he was still very old, but it was earlier than it would have been. And can I just say, just to add to that, I've known some people that actually worked for Hughes Airways, and the stories they told about the drugs at the office are awesome. Awesome. I'm not going to repeat them, but you're right. There is a whole chapter there that is not in the movie, because, I, I, and I think it's to the movie's credit, the movie only wants to cover this certain section, and for them, the way of the future for Hughes was a downward slide. But what nobody mentioned, which I read again in my post-research is that these opiates are what led to his OCD becoming uncontrollable Mm. and that it was the drugs that made him, you know, he probably always had some tendencies, but it wasn't until after that crash when he was on pain medication for the rest of his life that he really became a nutball. Yeah, I got that sense that that crash is the thing that really sent him spiraling down because he was, I mean, his inner organs like shifted or something. They were like, I mean, he shouldn't have lived through that and that he got up and got out of the plane and walked uh, over and sat down like that 
should not have happened. It's, he's superhuman. I'm telling you, he's the original superhero, Howard Hughes. Um, I don't know. It ends on a weird note, but it began on a weird note. And I kind of just appreciate it for the mad, delirious film that it is. It's not your traditional biography, and that's why I like it. I consider it to have had a happy ending because it was over. The ending was happy because it was an ending. All right. Fair enough. Arnie, Jacob, go ahead. Give me the give me the one sentence. Give me the give short stuff version. Do you recommend The Aviator? You know, I really do recommend The Aviator yeah. because I think that absolutely fucking not. <laughs> you know, the movie, I do another podcast called Books and Nachos where I review books and other people as well. And mostly it's fiction stuff like, Stephen King's Under the Dome. I'm imagining if somebody gave me a high school history textbook to review for books and nachos. And I would be able to do that because I'd be able to judge it for what it is, in which case it's not there to entertain but to educate. This movie did not entertain, so its only saving grace would be if it functioned as a biography on Hughes, so it would at least educate since it never entertains. However, even as a biography, it fails, unable to focus on any part of Hughes' life and spanning only a scant handful of years in the man's life, but yet taking the greatest hits from his whole life. We'll have known really little more about the man than most people would before, so it fails at entertainment. It fails as a history channel or biography channel educational program. It fails spectacularly in every way. If I was 90, maybe I'd feel nostalgic, but I ain't. Out of all the movies we've watched and now playing, this is the one I can give the strongest not recommend to, in fact. Man. I would rather not watch this than any other movie. And this includes some of the doldrums of the Friday the 13th because every single movie up until this one has entertained me in some way. In some way captivated me. I don't care if they had bad acting, bad production value. There was something there that made me feel I was spending my time well. This really felt like I, I can't believe the movie was only three hours. It felt like a hundred years. If I only had three hours to live, I'd like to spend it watching this movie. It would be the longest three hours of my life. And most miserable. It's a trade-off, Arnie. Think about that one. Jacob. Man, I'm conflicted about this film. I had to think about if I'm going to recommend it or not. Because there's so many great moments that I like. I love the whole Hell's Angels stuff, seeing that production, the the first big, you know, James Cameron style movie getting produced. I loved, uh, you know, the, the Hughes's obsession with breasts during the outlaw, you know, how they made this whole mathematical argument. There's so many moments that I like. I, and then, you know, this has been a big discussion on the now playing message boards about Avatar, and you know, it made me feel good. I had this emotional response. I had, I did have an emotional response to this movie. You know, I love this, and whether it's a myth or not, I love this idea of 20th century America ingenuity, where you know, we just had these crazy rich people, and they're just doing crazy new things and living in this modern age. It just seems so down in the dumps. I think, Arnie, you said during your Back to the Future review, where's my flying car? And where are these visionaries? Yeah, we have things like Google, but they're not giving me a flying car. They're not giving me a transporter. And it just seems there was this era where you had these figures that were larger than life, just changing the face of technology and just the way of the world. And I liked that feeling in this movie. I love that, you know – Doing new things with airplanes and, and destroying these monopolies, you know, destroying the government trying to control industry. I love those moments. But uh, 
this is a three hour film and there's a lot of stuff I didn't love. There's, you know, we've talked about this already. There's just moments in between that there's a lot going on here and it's hard to keep focused. This is, if you got ADD, yeah, I recommend this movie because the storyline changes every few moments here. And and in the end, with the resolution of this movie, the, 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 the ending of this movie, man, it just left me wanting. I, I, I was like, I just spent three hours, and that's what I get. I have no insight into this man. Yeah, like Arnie said, I got some greatest hits moments, but I just don't think it's worth the investment of time. There's not enough there to warrant this three hours of sitting down in front of your television. So in the end, I cannot recommend this movie. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weigh in here definitely on the strong uh, recommend, even though, yes, it is not a story. I, I think you have to approach it differently than you might a lot of entertainment films. And I think Arnie's criticism is valid uh, of it as entertainment. It is not really designed to do that. It's designed to create an impression. It leaves a very strong one. There are, are moments of lighthearted comedy. There are moments that are dark and very weird and scary. I appreciated all of it. I appreciated it for the nutball, crazy biography film that it was. You know, every year, my mom and I, we always go and see a movie in the theaters together. That's sort of our Christmas tradition. I think The Aviator would have been that movie if I had been home at that time. It's not a movie that I would turn on or or even be drawn to, per se, but it is a good movie... That you, it's a movie you could enjoy with your grandma. <laughs> it has a um, nice sensibility uh, between well, what I enjoy and what older nostalgic people might enjoy. And while it's not anywhere near my favorite Scorsese movie, I think that he had an interesting take on Howard Hughes, and I appreciated the experience of, of flying with him. I want to thank both of you guys for joining me today. Uh, Arnie, I'm, I'm, I hope you can, you can unfasten your seatbelt. We are not going to go anywhere near uh, biography films again in the near future. We're going to be heading to The Departed, and uh, that's our next film in the series. Let me tell you something. We are so lucky The Departed is next. Because if the next one was Shutter Island, I don't know if I could do it. But the fact that we're seeing a movie that has Marky Mark and Matt Damon and Jack Nicholson gives me and Baldwin again. Oh, Baldwin's in it too. That actually is everybody. Better. Every man is in this movie. But, but there's no, there's no John C. Riley. He was in Gangs in New York and Eater. Yeah. But where's John C. Riley? I need. I don't know. He was busy doing Talladega Nights. Yeah. I, All right. Well, I'm gonna. I'm just not gonna say too much more other than Arnie. I, I think you can unfasten the seatbelt. We've landed. I know it was some rough uh, turbulence for you, but um, we're headed towards really entertaining territory with The Departed next time. Hope to see you guys then. Thank God. I die a true American. Thank you for joining us for now playing Spartan Scorsese Leonardo DiCaprio retrospective series. Be sure to visit us at nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of Shutter Island, February 19th, for a new installment in this series. The movies discussed in this series are the properties of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing is not affiliated with Miramax Films, Intermedia Films, Initial Entertainment Group, Warner Brothers, or any other creative entity involved in these films. 
Now playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated. Copyright and trademark 2010. All rights reserved. The way of the future. 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 Man, you really didn't like this, Arnie. <laughs> I regret spending my time watching it. Are we saying biopic or biopic here? I say biopic, <laughs> I got, but I got biopic. one from each of you. Do you pee in milk bottles? I have peed in bottles before. I'll, I'll admit that. Uh, I think every man has it. at some point. Yeah, every man <laughs> has at some point. That's one of the advantages of being a man is being mm-hmm. able to pee in a bottle. Damn straight. But uh, no, I totally forgot where it's going. <laughs> When did you pee uh, in bottles, Arnie? When I was in college and I had a dorm room with no bathroom and I had a milk jug. <laughs> See, I, I had a, 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 a two-liter, empty two-liter bottle of uh, Dr. Pepper that I, I had used. So. I, I just kept putting my milk jug out in the fire escape. <laughs> People thought I was uh, making tea. <laughs> you were. <laughs> it, it does look like tea, so. 